0: Blood
1: talk Radio. Welcome to The Aesthetic Insider radio show. This is your host Angela Omara. Today we have a really exciting guest on the show, Dr. Frederick Corbin. Dr. Corbin is a plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills, California and has lots of surprises for us today as we talk about some of his signature um, plastic surgery procedures um and then also Dr. Corbin is um, a physician who does a lot of traveling over to countries like Africa, India, and in Latin America, where he does um, surgery on underserved people. And so that's something that we will be discussing in detail later in the show. Dr. Corbin, thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome to Aesthetic Insider.
0: No, thank you very much for having me on, on your show.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's talk a little about you. Um, Dr. Corbin, are you originally from the Beverly Hills area? And um, perhaps you can give us a little background on on you and kind of what you have done in your career as a plastic surgeon.
0: Well, uh, actually, I am a uh, tried-and-true New Yorker <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, came out to <laughs> uh, California at the end of my training I'm a fully trained board-certified plastic surgeon. I'm also a fully trained general surgeon and hand surgeon. I completed my general surgery training at uh, Tufts University in Massachusetts, my plastic and hand training at Columbia University in New York City. And then while I was waiting uh, to find out really where I wanted to go practice, I was asked by Kaiser to come out to California to help uh, start and developed their plastic surgery program uh ultimately tried to contract my services back to Kaiser so that I could do cosmetic surgery fee for service. That didn't work, so i uh went out into uh, private practice and uh been in private practice ever since while I was trying to contract with Kaiser other h m o s liked the idea. So it sort of eased my way into private practice doing a lot of reconstructive surgery, and then slowly but surely my cosmetic practice uh, built from there.
1: What would you say, you know, over the years um, you have seen of the procedures that are kind of like the tried and true, um, here-to-stay plastic surgery procedures, you know, despite that, you know, we do have a lot of changes in technology and different things, but you know, from your point of view, what are the the most popular procedures?
0: Well, in terms of, you know, this is interesting, in terms of popular procedures, I think that the same procedures are just as po- uh, popular as they were when I completed training, in other words, breast surgery, nasal surgery, facial surgery, um, and then body sculpting. But the interesting thing is the way we do it has changed, and I basically... Uh, frequently say to patients, I don't do anything the way I was initially trained to do it, because, you know, uh, ideas have changed, and the way we approach things is a little different today, and, you know, when you do anything, you look at your results, and, you know, if you see a better way uh, to get a better result, then you slowly but surely change, and over the years, I have Incorporated different techniques um, to obtain better results with literally everything that I do.
1: You know, speaking about p- facial surgery and changes, I mean, I think that's that's such a great um, comment that you made about how you know many of the the procedures. You know, you you have changed how you do things, and I, you know, looking back on plastic surgery, you know, twenty, thirty years ago. You know, it was always kind of known of like, you know, the facelift was too pulled. It was, you know, looked like the patient had been through a wind tunnel. Not everybody, but that was kind of a, a common complaint. And so, I think nowadays, I would imagine with with newer techniques, um, you're able to create much more natural-looking results.
0: Yes, well, that's absolutely the case. Formerly, all of the tension was placed on the skin. Nowadays, very little. Uh, tension is placed on the skin and this section is made uh, deeper to the place uh, in what's called under the SMAS, the submuscular aponeurotic system, and the pull is placed on that and the skin passively moves, much like if you have a tablecloth and you have something sitting on top of the tablecloth, if you pull on the tablecloth, the things sitting on top of it move. Well, the tablecloth is the submuscular aponeurotic system, and the skin is on top, and it passively moves, so you don't get that wind windswept look. And the, even the incisions, which formerly were placed in front of the ear, are now placed behind the tragus to hide the scars when one looks at one's face. And it, it's just a, a different operation. Also, in the neck... We never did anything with the muscle or with the tissues underneath what's called the platysma muscle in the neck. Now we sculpt the tissues underneath the platysma muscle and then tighten the platysma muscle in the neck to give a more youthful appearance. So, like I said, everything has sort of changed, and these are not things that I was uh, shown in training.
1: Now, what about in rhinoplasty? What what would you say have been kind of significant changes in rhinoplasty over the years?
0: Well, again, you know, formerly, very little was, you know, was done to maintain the sort of the breathing structure of the nose while reducing the size of the nose. So far, more care is taken in in improving the appearance of the nose to make sure that its functionality is maintained. Or in other words, many patients years ago with a big bump on their nose and a a large tip would have the nose made smaller and then they complain of difficulty breathing. And that's because the structures inside the nose collapsed. Now we do things to help maintain Uh, and prevent structures inside the nose from collapsing while we are improving the appearance of the nose. And that can be done either with what's called an open rhinoplasty, where an incision is made uh, across the columella, or um, with what's called a closed rhinoplasty. Um, And, you know, different doctors use those two techniques to essentially obtain the same result.
1: Do you think there's also changes in how, um, as far as appearance goes, you take a patient's um, ethnicity, oops, ethnicity into consideration? Um, because again, well,
0: that's absolutely. That, know, that absolutely is the case. But what I do, and again, was not available when we were initially in training, is we have computers. And so I can take the patient's photo, and I can take the photo back to my computer uh, with the patient standing next to me, and I can alter their appearance digitally so they can see how their nose might look. Then the patient can say to me exactly, you know, to make changes to the nose, how they would like it to look. And so then going into surgery, I have a image of the final result that they would like. And matter of fact, in my photo album we show photos of patients, we show their pre operative appearance, then I show their proposed post operative appearance as determined by the imaging or photoshopping. And then their actual appearance. And many of the new patients that come in, when they look at the photo album, they say to me, Wow, The patient's post-operative appearance is better than the proposed appearance, which, uh, you know, sells the surgery immediately. Plus, I've had patients come in who wanted to get their nose done who had a recessive chin. And when I do the mirror imaging and just change their chin and then morph the image, they go, wait a minute, you didn't do anything to my nose you just altered my chin.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And they're like, and I said, yes, because, it, you know, with a chin recessive, it makes the nose look bigger. But when you enhance the chin, it enhances your appearance. And they go, good, let's do the chin implant.
1: <laughs> you know, I would imagine, too, that not only, you know, are you providing the patient with um, some kind of sense of security and understanding going into into. The procedure that they're going to have performed, I would imagine, it makes for a really happy patient afterwards, in that you have met their expectation and given them the result that they had anticipated because you had shown it to them prior to the prior to surgery. Right, and
0: I might add that m- many doctors have a problem with that technique, which I've just described, because they they say that legally that's an Im- implied, uh, you know. Uh, Appearance and that if you don't bring the the result on the photo, that they have a grounds for suit. But a maybe because I've been doing it long enough that I feel confident in bringing about the result, and that, you know that I I really but don't worry
1: about that. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, let's um, talk a little bit about breast um, augmentation surgery because there have, again, there's been lots of changes just with type of implant, placement of implant, um, you know, younger women having surgery versus mummies having breast augmentation surgery. Um, what are you seeing in your practice as the current trend in breast surgery?
0: Well, first of all, we went through a period from 1992 to 2006 here in the United States, where literally, on the majority of patients, you had to use saline implants because of the implant controversy. In 2006, the FDA lifted the moratorium on the use of silicone gel implants, and so that all of the patients that were previously coming for saline now switched over and wanted gel, and those patients that now had saline implants, many of them were coming to have them replaced with silicone gel implants, so that's one major change. The second thing is there are different approaches to placing implants, again, which didn't exist when I was in training, um, where not only do we have uh, submammary placement, we have submuscular placement, and then even with submuscular placement, there's what's called the dual plane, and uh, and then there are varying levels of dual plane that you can place the implants in order to obtain the result that you desire. And basically, again, it's evaluation of the patient, determining what would give the patient the best result, and then going ahead and choosing that implant. Also, there are four different shaped implants for each volume, which again didn't exist when I was initially in training, which you can choose from to give the patient the best result for the desired volume
1: are you seeing any difference in age of patient um you know from what you were seeing kind of you know years past um younger patients older patients
0: well again that's that's uh surgery specific in other words um you know a patient has to be mature enough if a young girl comes in and wants to have her breast augmented and she hasn't reached full maturity uh, or a man comes in and wants to have, a young man comes in and wants to have his nose done you want to make sure that they have completed development before going ahead and doing the procedure because if you do the procedure too soon there might be changes that might adversely affect the final result um but other than that yes i mean both we have older patients coming in and uh and we have uh, younger patients uh uh coming in uh for various uh uh uh, uh pr- procedures um and again um, with better medical management of the older patient, we're able to operate on the older patient and or if they have medical conditions that weren't, obviously we take them to the hospital and do those procedures there.
1: You know one thing that fascinates me is um you know I mean plastic surgery you know in in years past has kind of been you know, very much kind of a hush-hush, nobody really wants to talk about it, and that seems to have changed significantly, and especially with social media. Um, I think it's also been considered it was, you know, the domain of the female patient, but as you have mentioned, you um, seem to have quite a significant male um, patient base and do a procedure that you call the daddy makeover. Can you explain that?
0: Well, the part of that came um, as a tongue-in-cheek because many women, would come in wanting mommy makeovers, and they would come in with their husbands, and here's the woman, you know, wanting to rejuvenate her face, rejuvenate her breast, and if she's had children, so to speak, sculpt her body, and there's her husband sitting there, who's usually older, and uh, having the same aging going on in his face, sometimes the same aging going on in his breast, as well as his abdomen, and you know the from that uh developed well we can do daddy makeovers as well because the husband would say well god if you're doing her neck maybe you know I should get mine done and <laughs> uh you know maybe I should get some of that fat removed off of my stomach and so we uh I developed this idea of the daddy makeover That's and right. uh so we do mommy and daddy surgeries
1: that's great. That's great. I love that. Um and it is, I mean I can just see it because I think, um, you know, especially for couples who want to grow old gracefully together, um, you know, I'm sure the husband doesn't want the wife looking, you know, ten times better than him. <laughs> so
0: Right. Matter of fact, uh sometimes I kid the men after we've you know, made the wife look better and I said to him, Well, you don't want to look like a pedophile.
1: Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. So
0: maybe you should come in and have some surgery done.
1: <laughs> well, I would imagine that would definitely convince anybody to come in and uh, you know <laughs> take a few years off themselves. Right. <laughs> You're listening to the Aesthetic Insider Radio Show. Today's guest, Dr. Frederick Carbin, is a Beverly Hills board-certified plastic surgeon. Dr. Carbin is known as the doctor's doctor by his peers because of his straightforward approach to perfection when it comes to plastic surgery and um, as well as patients in his practice, Dr. Carbin is known for doing surgery on many of the other physicians within his area. Committed to worldwide charitable causes, Dr. Carbin often travels to underdeveloped third world countries to perform reconstructive surgeries on children. Doctor Corbin, I'd love to chat more with you about um your travels and the countries that you've been to and the type of work that you have done um with, you know, like Operation Smile or other other organizations. Um how do you get started on, on doing that type of charitable work?
0: Well interestingly, it almost started when I was in residency down in San Diego because we used to go down to Mexico um, they had clinics there, and we used to quote pick up teaching cases and bring them back to the University of California, San Diego, and operate on them um From that though you begin to realize how lucky we are living in the United States because there's so much poverty in the rest of the world, and similarly, those you know poorer countries don't have access um to the you know medical care that's readily available here in the United States. So from that I became, you know, once I became a plastic surgeon became very interested in doing uh you know, helping uh children and adults with either post traumatic or congenital uh deformities. And um and then, you know, as soon as you make it known uh, that you're to some of these uh, groups like Operation Smile or International Relief Teams or Cascade Medical Groups or, you know, uh, Hope International or Southwest Medical Teams. They want you to, to come because, interestingly, uh, within the Plastic Surgery Society, only something like 5% of the membership is actually going on charitable missions. and And to be frank with you, If I were independently wealthy and didn't have to worry about, you know, uh, uh, providing uh, for my family, uh, that's all I would do um, because the patients are so grateful and it's just, it makes you, you know, feel so good about yourself uh, uh, because of that. I mean, whereas here in the United States, you know, it's almost like no matter what you do, some, with some of the patients, it's hard to satisfy them. But, you know, when you're going on a charitable mission, the people are so grateful for just about anything which you can do. And uh, you know you're changing their lives. I mean, here I'll operate on a woman in her 50s who's, you know, seeking a facelift or a brow lift or blepharoplasty. Whereas in India, I operate on women in their 50s who had unrepaired cleft lips and palates. Mm. Can you imagine seeing that in the United States? It would never occur.
1: It would never Not occur. Not to mention high school,
0: high school children with unrepaired cleft lips and palates.
1: That would never
0: occur here in the United States. They'd be operated on in, you know, the first year of life.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can't even imagine what it must feel as well for those patients to have lived their whole life, you know, with something like that 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 just must hold them back in so many ways.
0: Oh, totally. They're ostracized. You know, they're outcasts within their society. I mean, matter of fact, uh, recently, um, just very recently in the news, there was, you know, a story of a uh, a Chinese baby, a newborn with a cleft lip, and the parents left it in a cemetery uh, to die. And this is actually a quite common occurrence in China where they, they, you know, they... They're embarrassed by the fact that the child has a deformity. They can't readily get it repaired. And so they just leave the children to die.
1: Wow. Well, you know, That's
0: sad. It's, sad. it's, it's totally the, sad.
1: Yeah. What was the first um, country that you visited in your, your charitable missionary work?
0: You know, something, this is a function of my age, but I've been on so many missions.
1: Um, <laughs> okay, now the let thing, me which was your think back to the very. <laughs>
0: I, I, the very first mission was to oh, was to Ecuador, and that's actually an, an interesting story. That was with Southwest Medical Teams. There were three plastic surgeons supposed to go, and at the last minute, they informed me that the other two plastic surgeons dropped out, and so I said, "Well, I'll go and I'll operate," you know, uh, more rather than just operating from. 7 to 5, I'll operate from 7 to midnight so I can try and do as many procedures as with the other two guys. And the rest of the team was going. And when we got to Ecuador, the American ambassador to Ecuador said, Well, um, for your own safety and protection, I am assigning a, a SEAL team to you. (laughs) and now I sort of got an idea why the other doctors dropped out because the part of Ecuador which we're going to, Esmeralda which is the poorest part of Ecuador there were riots going on Uh, and it was dangerous going it was kind of weird I jog in the morning here I am jogging with two seals on either side of me with helmets, flak jackets and M16s locked and
1: loaded (laughs) Oh, how funny. It's like Bill Clinton. Isn't it? Right. I felt like, yeah, felt,
0: that's exactly what I felt like I was some dignity. But I also found out in Ecuador that given the poverty and, you know, something in the United States we don't necessarily appreciate, anyone with money there has their own private security. And so this was not, you know, they didn't look at this as being unnatural because you passed a home, you know, that was nicer than some of the, the the shanty neighborhoods, they always had guards in front of the home.
1: Of course, of course. Well, now um, I seem to think that I read somewhere that you were actually honoured by the government in Ecuador for charitable surgery services. Was that that year? Or yes, that, that it, was it, on uh, that
0: that was that year uh, by the governor, of, and again for going there and being there uh during a period of strife because in point of fact in Esmeralda when we were there riots were going on and people were throwing Molotov cocktails and they essentially used the 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 presence of the uh, um, this American team being there to riot so they got press coverage.
1: Mm. Now, now in India, you know, you're talking about you know the this fifty year old woman who was you know basically lived her whole life with a cleft palate that you, you know, in your travels to India were able to repair. Um, Where was that in India, and how was, you know, did you have any follow-up at all with that woman to know how you had changed her life? I mean, do do they let you know through the organization where the patients kind of go after they've been treated by you?
0: Unfortunately, and that's one of the, In in Summersetts, unless you go back, that's one of the downsides of the missions because many of the people whom you're operating on, they find out through press releases or pamphlets uh, that a team is coming to a specific town. In our case, it it was Dharamshala, which is uh, northern India, and people come from miles and miles. to to wait online and hope that they can get a procedure done, and obviously there's a limit to how many procedures we do, and we see far more people who would benefit from surgery than we were able to perform in in one visit, and then those people go back to the home. Matter of fact, one of the I I was in the hospital, and uh, two gentlemen came up to me and uh, asked, you know, if we were operating on, uh, you know. But children with cleft lips and palates? And I said, absolutely. And they said, well, we have a child, you know, we'd like to get operated on, you know, would you do it? And I said, fine, but the child has to be cleared, you know, first by anesthesia and by pediatrics to make sure you can tolerate the procedure, where's your child? And they said to me, well, we live essentially 12 hours away. You know, we just came here to make certain you'd be here. So I said, well, go back get your child and come back. And, you know, and they're basically taking buses. It's not like it's, a, you know, they're getting in their car and driving. Um, and bring your child back because we triage the first three days we're here and then we set up the OR schedule and operate. And I gave them my business card. And they came back actually while we were operating. So we'd already set up our operative schedule. But I had said to the gentleman that if indeed – your child would benefit from our services, I would make certain that he got his procedure done. And they came back and the child had a bilateral cleft lip and palate, but what made it funny is they showed up at the hospital with my business card and one of the Mm -hmm. nurses came into the operating room and they said, Dr. Corbin, there are two gentlemen here that say they have an appointment with you. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And so then I went out, we examined the child, he was cleared by pediatrics, and we did him the next day, and they were extremely happy.
1: Wow! Well, like you said, we can't even imagine it here, you know, because um, as much as we know, we might complain about, you know, long lines at the doctor's or long waits at the doctor's office, um, that type of thing, you know, we'd never have to travel, you know. Now, there were 600 on. <laughs>
0: people waiting online to be seen by us, yeah. now, obviously not, all could be seen in one day, and those same people, you know, would sleep, you know, outside the hospital on the ground because half of them had walked miles on their own or taken buses uh, in order to get there and just waited to be seen. And that's true when I, uh, you know, literally every country that I've been to, that the people would come from miles around without any, you know, transportation either by foot or, you know, Public transportation in order to uh, get there. I might add that because of the nature of our mission, the virtuous nature of our mission to Dharmshala, the Dalai Lama, who lives in McLeod Ganj, which is right next to Dharmshala, asked to meet with us uh, so that he could uh, question us, uh, you know, regarding our mission. And it was a thrill to meet the Dalai Lama.
1: Oh I can't even imagine it I can't even imagine it um and now let me ask you does um how did how were you able to communicate with him I mean um obviously he's an English speaker I'm assuming um but how was it was he did he have body gas? I mean was it like oh, you know what type First of, of type all
0: it? going to McLeod Gunge, you go through a uh, screening that is literally stripped down, search, and then go through medical detection in order to get them because the Chinese and, you know, the Dhamshala being near the Himalayas is right next to China, what's now Mm -hmm. part of China. And the Dalai Lama is considered a terrorist, though if a mosquito were biting him, he wouldn't slap it and try to kill it because he doesn't believe in killing anything because he believes we're all linked, you know. uh it was just wonderful meeting with him. And the 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 thing is, when you're in his presence, you know, before we met him, they 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 told us you address him as His Holiness, and to me that seems strange until you actually meet him, and then it's appropriate.
1: Yeah, I mean that must have been such a you know, I would imagine a very memorable moment in your life.
0: Oh, t- totally memorable totally memorable it's um, you know i'm uh, very lucky to have had that uh, occur
1: you know what a great career that you've had i mean from you know like roots in new york lifestyle in beverly hills and southern california then traveling you know to parts of the world that most people are terrified of ever ever seen that level of poverty and you know human deprivation if you will um what's next for you
0: well, I've, you never know.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Clearly, I'll, I'll go on more charitable missions. I was actually asked by the U.S. government uh, to go to Afghanistan, and my wife nixed that idea. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, right.
0: but, um, but like I said, if I uh, were independently wealthy, that's um, uh, all I would do is do uh, charitable missions, Um because you you really feel good about yourself doing that, and um by just you know that's just me, I guess, but I will say this that in my practice here, you know I try you know the nature to to truly do as good a job as I possibly can and treat every patient to the best of my abilities. Um, and in some respects, irrespective of their ability to pay. Because I've, like uh, right now, I have a woman that I'm seeing who went on, quote, medical tourism, went down to Mexico and had uh, multiple procedures done, a, a quote, a mommy makeover Mexican style, and had uh, multiple complications from that procedure after she came back to the United States and, uh, you know, went to a uh urgent care um, to be seen. And the urgent care started calling around and no one would see her. And I said, well, have her come in. And I've, in point of fact, been paid. You know, I never ask uh, one's ability to pay when I get called to an emergency room. And I've been paid in uh, tamales Tacos, you know, et cetera. Um, You know, because basically, uh, you know, I'm a physician and, uh, you know, I I try to help people. Uh, Obviously, sometimes that can lead to abuse because I'll be paid a good call to an emergency room in the middle of the night to suture up someone who is a, a self pay, which is a euphemism for no pay. They might be illegal and have no money and no insurance. And then the next morning, I have a cosmetic case, and would you know, the first thing that the cosmetic case will ask me is, "Well, I hope you got a good night's sleep last night."
1: Well, I I would imagine if you you're used to doing twenty plus hour days in third world countries, that once in a while, um, you're not going to be too deterred by a little bit a little lack of sleep.
0: No, not at all. Matter of fact, for ten years of my life during training, I worked every day every other night and every other weekend 36 on 12 off 36 on 12 off 60 straight on the weekends now in training you're not allowed to do that
1: of course not of course not well dr carbon it's been so great having you on the show and i think your patients must just be feel so lucky to have you as a surgeon regardless of of just where you happen to have done their procedure whether it's here or or on a mission um how can our listeners reach you? What's the best calling number or website? Can they where can they find you?
0: Well, they can go to the, my. Well, we have multiple websites, but they can go to www.drcorbin.com. Doctor Dot com. We also have expert Dot com, gynecomastia um, uh, uh, amongst some of them. Um, And they can call directly 714-671-3033 or 310-286-2684.
1: Dr. Collins, thank you so much for your time on the show today. I mean, it's just been a true pleasure, and I hope to have you back on Aesthetic Insider Radio sometime in the near future.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's been fun talking to you.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) Have a good day. You too. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye.